Jesus, pray with me, Father, how we love you, how we thank you for Christ, how we thank you for that name that is above every name, that name that rescued us from our sinfulness, that name that gave us new life, new hope, new joy new destiny. To you alone, O God, we offer our praise, our adoration. We pray now that by your grace, you have given us your word. Through the kindness of your heart, you have revealed who you are, that we might not wonder, that your people might know who you are, love you with all of their hearts, and obey you with all of their might. So Lord, I pray now as we spend some time in your word that you would move our hearts to application, move our stubborn wills to obedience, move our rebel hearts to love for you above ourselves and everything else. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as I was preparing for this sermon, doing a little research, I um, found myself looking at an article uh, from Forbes magazine concerning the Fortune 500 companies, and in particular, the ACSI rating, which is the American Customer Satisfaction Index for the top six corporations in America for customer service. Do you know what is number one? Any guesses? I heard something. Disney. Good guess. I heard a voice crying in the wilderness. (laughs) Disney. Not Disney. I'll I'll tell you because we don't have so much time. Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. So how about that? It's the chicken that wins again, the gospel bird, Chick-fil-A. And what's interesting is it's Chick-fil-A, Trader Joe's is second, a grocery chain, Aldi third, a grocery chain, Amazon, Lexus, Costco. Um, Under Costco, it it writes there a a slogan uh, describing their business model as service-centric corporate culture. What I found uh, fascinating, when I I noticed it was Chick-fil-A, of course, I couldn't just look there. I realized that you know, they were, they were rated as far superior to, in professionalism and courtesy and politeness, focused menu, great service. So I decided, to, I, I decided to do a little more research on Chick-fil-A, and I realized that I found out that, um, and you maybe don't know this, but they generate more revenue per store than any other fast food chain in the U.S., and they do it all in six days while everybody else works seven. Can you imagine? They actually blow the competition out of the water, and there's more to it than that. In fact, 
The average revenue generated per Chick-fil-A store is $3.1 million per year, which really eclipses everybody else. The next closest chicken uh, fast food is uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and they're just light years ahead of it. And, and, and each uh, franchise only costs $10,000. Can you imagine? Like, McDonald's are well over a million dollars per franchise. It's unbelievable. I want to move to the States and start a Chick-fil-A franchise. And, and, the rule, and, and the, their business model is that you can only have one franchise. You can't have multiple franchises, which is really cool because the idea is that the owner-manager, is, is his focus is on that one store, making it excellent, being there all the time, not scattered about by stores in a bunch of cities, but his focus is there. His life is in that community, <clears throat> and, and he, he, he gives his full attention to that community. They disciple their staff. My words, not theirs, but they disciple their staff in that they, they seek to, to move their staff towards realizing their dreams, helping them to rec- realize leadership and, and, and move toward conferences and things in the, in the, in the profession they might want to move into after Chick-fil-A. Uh, what I would say to you is Chick-fil-A is probably the best church in America. That's what it seems to me as, I, as I've studied and think about them and I think about what we're going to talk about today and the reason that I, I said this is because they stay on model, they, they maintain their, their uh, professionalism, they maintain their reputation, they, they stick with their brand culture, they, they don't put their uh, employees or customers at risk and their managers care about their community. That sounds like a church to me and quite honestly I think we all know here what, what Forbes magazine doesn't know, what Fortune 500 companies don't know, is that Chick-fil-A is blessed of God. That, that's what I take from it. And, and, and I, I, I wonder, as, as I think about the realities of church, the realities of how we treat our brand, the way we treat our owner, the way we treat our customers, the, the way we honor the reputation of our product... I wonder if we aren't failing miserably across the board. And quite honestly, uh, there's a generational tendency for God's people to treat our owner, our customers very badly, to become very liberal about our brand, about our playbook. Opting freely to change the customer service manual, to customize God's words to suit us, to suit our selfish preferences. Apparently, as I read the scriptures and as we take a look at the landscape of Christianity, in North America, in particular, Canada in particular. It would seem that craft religion and smorgasbord theology existed long before craft beer and buffets. Thinking, what, what in the world is the pastor talking about craft beer for? What does he know about that? What do you know about it? Uh, this past summer, I was with the kids, and uh, I like to embarrass them once in a while. So 
when the waitress came to the restaurant we were at, she was asking, you know, you know how they come first, would you like some beverages and all this stuff, you know, and I said, yes, I would like some craft water, please. Kids were like, she looks at me like, what, you guys from Mars, who are you? And the kids were like, oh, dad, please, it's so ridiculous, but anyway. Go ahead in the restaurant, order some craft water and just take a look at the waitress when she looks at you. There's a horrible tendency among us to drift. Now, we've had um, some encouraging prophecies through the book of Zechariah so far, but when we get to Zechariah 5, <clears throat> it's a warning prophecy. It's a... Uh, Vision 5 and 6, if you're keeping track. This is a wake-up call, a wake-up call about God's people drifting. And the the script is always the same throughout all of the Scripture and then on into how we see things operating around us. First of all, people tamper with the Word of God, and then they begin treating people badly, and pretty soon they replace God. That's the... That's the schedule of events. That's, that's how it, it plays out regularly. And, and what we're going to discover today in this flying scroll and a measuring basket that takes wings, which is quite bizarre as a vision, it's talking about those who are weakening and warping God's word, committing social violence, and replacing God with other affections. And God is saying to us here from this prophecy that those who do that will be prosecuted to the full measure of the law. So if you have your Bibles with you or your electronic devices or however you search out the scriptures, would you please look at Zechariah 5 with me this morning? Zechariah chapter 5, verse 1. I looked again. That's how we know that this is a new vision. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. By the way, I'm going to explain this, but it would be better to insert in the words banished, cleared. I'll explain to you. That's what is the affront to God. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, Look up and see what this is that is appearing. And I asked, what is it? He replied, it is a measuring basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. And then the cover of lead was raised. And there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed the lead cover down over its mouth. And then I looked up and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, 
to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When it is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. This is the word of God. We're kind of left scratching our heads when we read this. We're like, how many read this as devotions this week? And we're like, what in the world? Read this before you came to church. You're like, whoa. Rick's going to talk about flying scrolls and winged baskets. The visions of flying scroll and the three women and the winged measuring basket are, are focusing our attention on word and worship. When the word of God is customized, and we're going to look at this, to justify sin, which we see is rampant around us, social violence occurs every time. When people sin, people get hurt. And the worship of God is always put at risk. So it is important for us to understand that this flying scroll, when you think about it, it's um, hovering over God's people. 30 feet by 15 feet. I don't know how to translate that into the common mathematical vernacular, measurement vernacular. I don't know what is in centimeters and meters. And quite frankly, I don't care. I'm from that generation. I understand 30 feet and 15 feet. You can translate it however you want to. But you have this picture of God's word or Torah, the, the written or recorded word of God. The ancient people had, the, the writings of Moses. And there's this dramatic event that's taking place. I mean, think about it. Think about it for a few moments. If, if my Bible all of a sudden grew to 30 by 15 feet and started levitating over top of us, it would get our attention, wouldn't it? So that's the picture you have here. And, and what we do know from the study of God's people in the Old Testament, we understand that the Torah was considered the charter of ancient Israel. It was central to who they were and central to how they were to live. And, and something is clearly wrong because God is trying to get their attention in a dramatic fashion. Central to exilic restoration is that God's word would be regarded again as, as, as central to everything they, they were and everything they do. And you know they were, they were at the end of their captivity to Babylon and then on into Persia and, and they were somewhere along the way in their captivity to Persia. And the bottom line is God is, is basically sending a message to them, what about my word? What about my word? I, I can tell you that you, don't, you won't come to talk to me too long about something that's going on in your life or ask me certain questions or, or seek counseling or whatever uh, or, or bring some conversation to me that will tell, I will try to focus it back to this. I will ask you, what does God's word say about this? It, it really is central to, to how I operate. I'm not interested in, and you shouldn't be interested, and I know you aren't in my opinions. We're here to understand 
What does God think about things? What is it that God wants? And so you have this vision of this giant scroll, 30 feet by 15 feet. Now, it was, it was possible for a scroll to be 30 feet long, but scrolls were never 15 feet high. They may be a foot. This is something very unusual. And as, as Salim said to us last week, you should ask the questions. Like, that's not normal. <laughs> what are you telling us, Lord? What should we be looking for? Well, clearly it's emphasizing size and scope. Something's not right. Something's amiss. It's, it's, it's clearly talking about the, 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 as you continue to read on contextually, that something is going wrong when you read the word curse and, and you read about thieves and you read about false swearing falsely. You know something's wrong. So you're talking about the size and the scope of the iniquity of Israel. And, and you'll notice in the text that it says on one side it says this and on another side it says that. It's a two-sided scroll. Scrolls are not two-sided normally. They roll up and they're written on one side. There is a place in the Bible though where there is a two-sided writing of God. In Exodus 32, you probably see it in your margin if you hunt for it. When God handed the tablets from Mount Sinai to Moses... They were written on both sides. This is to remind them or to, to draw them into a link to the Sinaitic covenant. We're talking covenant here. He is reminding the people of God with this, um, this display, this vision, that this is about covenant I'm talking. I'm talking about your your rejection, your violation of covenant. Only by the time we get to the word curse here, we realize that, that there was a formulaic uh, behavioral pattern of the ancients, whereby when they were striking a covenant of relationship, they would, they would, they would place a curse on themselves if they would break the covenant. So having all, being armed with all of that background, let's, let's attempt to put a statement to this section and then let's dig some more things out of it. There's true dramatic changes that must be in place in your life or take place in your life as we, as we pursue this text. And the first is this, that the reality of our salvation is the centrality of God's word which is being written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're, we're, we're looking at this text through the lens of a New Testament church. That's who we are. And we're asking ourselves, what's the application to us? What is the message to us? The message to them was about God's word and covenant. The message to us is about God's word and covenant. We've been singing about covenant all morning. We've been singing about the covenant of our salvation. We've been singing about the cost of the covenant of our salvation. Our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross willingly and shed his blood that we might be put in covenant with Almighty God. A covenant that has changed everything for us. A covenant that has changed our hearts, changed our desires, changed our destiny. And we celebrate that. We've come 
to, to celebrate and, and to praise him for covenant. But if, if restoration from exile, from being a lost person to being a person who walks with God is ever going to take root in your life, the message here is that God's word must be central to who you are and what makes you tick. And that Israel and us must come out fully from the culture around us. Throughout all of Scripture, through the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, there is this proclamation to God's people. Come out from among them and be separate. Do not become like the people of the world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind through God's Word, implanted into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that we might bear much fruit as we walk in the Lord. This is the central message for God's people of old and is a central message for us today. And God keeps forcing this message upon us and warning us about this because we, are, we have a tendency to drift away. We have a tendency to get sloppy with our relationship with the Scriptures and our relationship in covenant with the Lord. And here we are called back. Let's be honest about the centrality of God's Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God will be equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Your Word have I hid in my, that I might not sin against you. Oh, you know that verse, Psalm 119. Verse 11, your word is a lamp unto my, and a light unto my path, Psalm 119, 105. How can a young man or a young woman keep his way pure? You don't know that one so well. <laughs> by guarding it according to your word. By guarding it according to your word, Psalm 119, verse 9. When this levitating scroll is, is eclipsing the vision of the prophet, it is sending a message to God's people that those of you who have been graced by God with his word are without excuse there is no claiming ignorance of God's word or God's ways to those who have God's words that you can't see or that you can't get out from under the reach of its requirements. Its scope and its size envelop us. There's an emphasis here on curse. It says, you know, I said to you before that they would put on themselves a curse if they would break relationship. And God is saying to them, this is the curse. Here's what you've done. The curse that's going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, you have tampered, in other words, you have tampered with my word because you have changed it from every thief will be banished to every thief will be nakah, acquitted, cleared, 
New American Standard translates this correctly. You have tampered with the curse that says, if I break your word, the curse should be on me. And what you have done is you have said, we can break your word and be acquitted. We can lie about breaking your word and be cleared of all charges. That's what you have done so that the curse was no longer upon you. And God says, I will not be tricked by this. My word stands. My word will not go forth without accomplishing its purposes. And he says in verse 4, I will send it out. And it will, it, will, um, it will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. Beloved, this is a very serious charge to those who tamper with my word, to those who customize my covenant to suit their wicked desires. I will judge their house. I will destroy their house, their household. Whenever or wherever the word of God is tampered with to suit human depravity, all relationships are placed in jeopardy, and certainly our relationship with the Lord and with each other. And social violence will always bring the discipline of the Lord. You have been stealing from each other, and you have been lying about it. You have been stealing the truth and lying about it. Beware of two wicked characteristics of people that have existed since the beginning. And the one is this, to remake the God who is into our own image. There's plenty of verses to back that up. Isaiah 29, 16, Psalm 50, 21. It's a reversal of the truth. We are to be remade in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. The image of God has been tarnished by sin, and we are being refashioned, remade into the image of Christ. But the tendency of human beings is to remake God in their own image so that he looks more like us and less like himself so that we can justify our own behavior. And the second wicked tendency is to re retrofit or revision God's word to fit our desires and our preferences. Read Jeremiah. That was the issue of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 5.30, Jeremiah 8.8, 8, Jeremiah 23, 25-29. I wish we had the time just to sit and study it and just to stare at it and realize how seriously God takes his word, how important it is. And both of these styles, to remake God into our own image and to retrofit and revision God's word, are satanic. Satanic hermeneutic. He did it in the garden. He did it in the wilderness. He tricked Adam and Eve. He couldn't trick Jesus. And there's no excuse for him tricking the church. We are not to be ignorant of his ways. And this text screams at us, don't be ignorant of this. Don't miss this. Proper instruction of God's word is not based on better angels and sunny ways. 
It takes an accurate hermeneutic, an accurate interpretation. On Friday, uh, one of my research assistants who doesn't get paid, doesn't know he's a research assistant, he's just a Facebook friend and he sends me good stuff. And he happened to send me a YouTube, a timely YouTube on Friday. Not just me, but all kinds of people, but me. And um, it was a YouTube sermon of a young Moody, uh, Moody Bible Institute graduate pastor. And he said, he said, you know, you need to listen to this. I spent the next 25 minutes not believing how bad it is out there. You see, this young uh, graduate from Moody Bible Institute is living an immoral lifestyle. And he's pastoring a church in San Diego. I'll not name him because I never do, or I try not to. It's the issue that concerns me. And it's relevant to this text. He, He pastors a church, and the sermon text that he was choosing on this particular Sunday, which was his, as I understand it, induction service Sunday. Sunday he was being invited to be pastor of the church. He chose 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, and I thought, I, I, I can't imagine how he can choose or would choose this text to justify his lifestyle. Because in that text, if you know it, it says, be, I, I think King James, be ye holy, for I am holy. He began, and I jotted it down with this introduction, pride is holy. He happened happened to be referring to Pride Month. Pride is holy. So I thought, I I, I thought I have to listen now to the sermon because I can't I can't imagine where he's going with this. And then I heard him say this shortly thereafter, and I understood what was up. Listen very carefully. And I quote him. I'm going to reframe what these Christian words like holy mean for us. It's exactly what was going on in Zechariah 5. Exactly. I'm going to reframe these Christian words what these Christian words mean for us. I won't take the time other than to say that his explanation was this. Holy means different. I was with him for a few moments when he was talking about God. God is holy other. He is above his creation, his communicable and incommunicable attributes. Things that we don't have though. God is holy and other and invites us to receive a righteousness from God that changes our position. But his point was this. God is different. Holy means different. And we are holy because we are different. 
And the more different we are, the more holy we are, and the more pleasing we are to God. Can you imagine? And he made this statement, holy isn't about morality and purity, but about reconciliation to your true self. That'll preach in the church of Satan. That's exactly what Satan wants us to be. All about ourself. It's the opposite of the Christian message. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Brothers and sisters, this is a sneaky style of interpretation that's going on all around us. In churches, by the way, he's calling himself evangelical. In churches all over this continent. Very simply, when we are teaching scripture, there are certain rules. And at least there are two important steps. There's more to it than this, but, but these are critical. Two important steps. What does the text mean? First step. And what does the text mean to us in application? But it can't mean to us what it didn't mean. Ever. And what these people are doing, and the Bible is hovering over their churches, is flipping that hermeneutic upside down. They are getting application first and then determining what the text means second. What do I want the Bible to mean? That's what I'll preach. That is not how I preach. Pastor Kay, if you ever hear me up here saying I'm going to reframe this text, the Christian words, what it will mean for us, come up here, throat punch me, <laughs> then choke me and drag me off the stage because I'm having a diabetic fit. God's words and Jesus are a package deal. Take it or leave it in its entirety. If the written word interferes with your vision of the living word, you have your sights set on a different living word. The word of God is Jesus in written form. John 1.1. 1, 1. There's a second, and we don't have a ton of time here. We have a few moments, but let me just say that this basket... You see, the, the bottom line is that the reality of our salvation is the centrality of God's word as it is given to us, as it is written, not tampered with, not customized ever. The second is this, the centrality of our salvation, or the reality of our salvation is the centrality of the worship of the true living God. And this picture of the basket is quite simple. You, you look here and you say, what is it? Reading verse 6, it's a measuring basket. Measuring basket of what? A measuring basket of iniquity, a measuring basket of sins. God has filled up a basket, measuring it with the sins of his people, the iniquity, the guilt of sin, and he's put it all in a basket. And then he lifts up the cover of lead as if there's something toxic inside. It's like a, a toxic chamber. And inside there's this woman sitting cross-legged. And I would submit to you that it's not a human woman or not a real woman, but rather a statue. I would submit to you that this is an idol. This is about idolatry. It's the act of sin. The act of sin is idolatry. The, the reality of our salvation is the centrality of our worship of God and not the worship of ourselves or the worship of other things. Unless God is central, the ways of the world will be. 
And your relationship with God is placed at grave risk. The reason he's bundling all of this up and carting it away is he's symbolizing, I want this far from you. Get your sins, get your idolatry far away from here. This is not who you are. And he put, carts it off on the wings like a stork. A stork is an unclean animal. In every way, the imagery here is screaming at us, get this out of your life as fast as you can. There's one thing that seriously threatens the love relationship between God and you. And that's when he is replaced by anyone or anything it's called idolatry. We're going to go home after church this after, this, this, at noon. And there's going to be this subtle workout on your life. And it's going to go something like this. There's a prayer service called at the church tonight. Time spent with God concentrated, focused time in relationship, in covenant with our God. And the choice is going to be, will you do that? Or will you worship the big screen TV in your living room? 25% of you aren't coming back to church next Sunday. Because Saturday night... This battle is going to happen between God and God being replaced by something else. Some other desire, some other event, some other person, some other thing. Uh, we have the numbers to back this up as truth. And, and, and you won't come back the next Sunday or the next Sunday after that. Some of you haven't been here for a month. And you'll be back next month sometime. Beloved, I'm sorry, that's idolatry. I don't know of any other word to call it. It is choosing to replace God with other things. That's what he's talking about here, the replacement of God. How do marriages break up? Marriages break up when somebody else gets in between the marriage. Someone else interferes. Someone is replaced because that other person wasn't enough for you. How is it that a relationship breaks up with God? It's the same way. God isn't enough. Jesus isn't enough. Other things crowd him out. And he, he's telling you, I'm putting all of that in a basket. I'm putting your cross-legged woman, and I'm putting it in a basket, and I'm shipping it off to Babylonia, which is what you should do with it. And in your margin of your Bible, Babylonia is probably stated as Shinar. Do you know what Shinar is, Old Testament scholars? Shinar is Genesis 11. Does that bring anything to you? Shinar is the Tower of Babel. This is an image and a reference to the place where humanity decided to replace God, that we would build a tower ourselves, and in our ingenuity and our knowledge and our greatness, we don't need God. And God is reminding us historically, thousands of years before this, the same thing is happening. The same thing is happening today. We turn to our things and we say, we don't really need prayer tonight. We don't really need God. We're doing just fine. And we 
get from underneath his rule. And God says, I'm packaging up your iniquities. I'm packaging up your act of sin. I'm packaging up your idolatry, one and the same. And I'm putting it in a measuring basket. And I'm carting it off to Shinar, where it belongs. I'm sending it to hell, where it belongs. And there I'll erect a monument to it. I'll put it in a house. And I'll let people who don't love me come and bow to it. But not you, not you, not you, not the ones I've called into covenant with me. Have you allowed yourself to be exiled? What you have allowed yourself to be exiled to, you must be exiled from. Get out of Babylon, people. Get out of Babylon. And get on your knees and worship the living God. The results of worship are the same for everybody. You become a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service, your act of worship. You haven't worshiped God unless you've become a living sacrifice. The progressives of our world have their sights set on one place and one philosophy. Babylon and freedom from the rule of God. Beloved, this text is urging us. It is begging us. Not Babylon for you. And remain under the rule of God and His word. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We couldn't get saved without the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And he grows us and keeps us the same way he saved us. Love, this is a prophecy of warning. This is an act of God's love to you. Change the way you're living. Or God will judge you. Our Father, I pray and thank you for your incredible and immense gracious kindness to us. How many times could you have just lowered the boom, oh God? We have chased after everything, replacing you in a whim, tampering with your words so they would suit our desires. Oh God, forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive those who call themselves the church and raise up an army, O oh God, of people who remain loyal to your covenant and who worship you only. For Jesus' sake I pray, amen.
just before Steve, just let me leave you with one important question. What if God was really in charge of your life? How would that change today and tonight and tomorrow and next weekend if God were really in charge of your life? I want to leave you this morning with six diagnostic questions that I jotted down. They're available on our website, will be on our website, Shane, I think, and they're available at the office. You want to pick up a copy, but um, by the way, be, beware of, of any place that decentralizes or downplays the centrality of preaching or who somehow uh, exploits the Bible to suit the desires of the culture. or demeans the majesty of Jesus Christ and His glory. But these are the diagnostic questions I want you to take with you and think about. Is your heart a garden wherein the Holy Spirit is sowing the Word of God so that a completely reordered new life is springing forth from inside out? Do you keep defaulting to a customized version of the religious menu or are you committed to God's truth as delivered? Is Christ the center and God your goal? Are your activities taking you toward Jesus or away from Him? Is church entertainment for you or are you moved toward becoming a living sacrifice? You haven't worshipped today if you leave here and aren't a living sacrifice. Are you living in such a way that the spiritually curious are, are brought into the worshipful presence of God just by being around you? Beloved, it's about a passion for word and worship. May God help us on our watch. to not negotiate away anything of God's Word and our passionate worship of the living Christ. Oh, Father, you've heard us. You've directed us in your Word. Now would you make this the meditation of our hearts that it moves out from in to the outside of how we live. May our life lives practice demonstrate a passion to worship the living God and to obey his word. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.